it's a little while since we did one of our bird bites, one of those interviews we do from time to time to look at issues. But in the last week, and as you'll have seen in the newsletter, an industrial relations story has dominated the news headlines in, in the UK. The dismissal by P&O of 800 um, of its onboard uh, crew uh, without any consultation whatsoever. Most unusual, most unusual in this day and age. And indeed, yesterday, the chief executive of P&O said to a committee of the House of Commons that they knew they were breaking the law in failing to inform and consult. So is it ever justifiable for a company to knowingly break the law? And P&O appears to want to buy its way out of the difficulties it has created, but it is ever justified for a company to knowingly break the law. And indeed, what is the law? And are there gaps in the law in the UK that allow a company to get away with this? So to discuss these issues with me are my, my colleagues, my old colleagues, um, Vince Tolman and David Hopper from Lewis Silken. Um, guys, what's going on here? Well, Tom, I think, I think we've got to start by recognising that there are a lot of unknowns. And Tom, you mentioned the, the parliamentary hearing yesterday um, before a joint, a joint meeting of the Transport Select Committee and the Business Select Committee in the UK Parliament. And one of the things that came out from that is, bluntly, people don't yet know all the facts. And I think that's a really important caveat that we've got to mention at the start of this. This is a really complex situation that's playing out in real time. And you can sense the frustration among, you know, for example, the ministers and the MPs about the fact that no one actually knows all of the detail yet. And one of the things I really do need to say is the devil really is in the detail here. We're looking at a situation that isn't just your regular um, employment situation in the UK, but overlaid on top of that is all kinds of nuances and complexities because these individuals are seafarers, you have all kinds of international law aspects. That said, what is going on here? I think we can break it down um, you know, into a number of different categories from the sort of the collective employment law angle. The first of all is, were the relevant notifications given? So under, under UK law, and this follows the European legislation that, that came in before Brexit happened in the UK, there are requirements to notify in advance of collective redundancies. And I think it's worth taking a step back as to reason why that exists, is to put the governments on notice about potential mass redundancies, which means that, for example, they can line up the job centres, they can help to put in place all the support that people going through this kind of a difficult time need. And one of the issues that's cropped up is if you don't give those notifications in advance, we find ourselves in exactly the same position as we are now of the government scrambling around and not knowing how it can actually intervene to try and help. And one of the complexities here is the seafarers dynamic, which means that it appears that the relevant notifications were given, although there's a question about whether they were given in time, but they were actually in fact given to, for example, the Cypriot government because the ships were flagged under um, the Cypriot registries. So I think the, the, the notification issues are particularly problematic for P&O because a failure to comply with it is not just a, a civil offence, so something which you can get compensation of individuals for, but is also potentially criminal. And one of the things we heard in the, in the session yesterday before Parliament was how so much of this is being driven by P&O making a calculated financial decision. And what will be interesting is whether that calculated financial decision actually pays off in practice because under the, under the UK's legal regime, if you have failed to comply with these notification requirements, it is actually uncapped criminal penalties. So the fact that they effectively have made a, they may have made a calculated decision to disregard the law may actually be something that would then be taken into account by the courts in terms of the argument about the, the, the financial position. Well, it does, it, it does appear from 
what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, it does appear that people working on ships um, are subject to the jurisdiction of the country in which the ship is registered. So the argument appears to be, well, UK information and consultation and collective redundancy law doesn't apply to these ships because they're, they're not actually British. So they, and, they, and this is where it becomes very difficult. So you have to almost look at the two things separately. You've got the notification requirement, which is what I was talking about, where the notification would have to go into the, the, the registry of the country where the ship is flagged. So, for example, Cyprus. And clearly there's a practical issue of if a notification is received by the Cypriot authorities about potential dismissals going on on the other side of Europe, how, how helpful is that in practice? And that's one of the things the MPs talked about um, yesterday of should the UK post Brexit be using its, its new freedoms to actually change that framework? So if there is a closer nexus between where the work's being done in the UK, the notifications would have to go into the UK. But where picking up on the second line of, of your points though, Tom, is the point about the collective consultation. Because for collective consultation, what you look at is the actual factual situation of the link between the ship and the UK or, or Great Britain in particular um, for most of these examples. And there what they do is they look at the ship as a whole and based upon that, they say, does that ship then fall within the UK legal framework? So it's possible that even though the notification would have gone to Cyprus, the collective consult consultation obligations did arise. And that, that's where, by the looks of it, from what we heard in Parliament yesterday, that's where the business has made a calculated decision of we are simply going to disregard this legal framework. And I think well, you could see... Well, if the ship... This might be a stupid question, right? But if the ship sails between the UK and France, right, why couldn't it equally be argued that French collective redundancy laws apply to the ship? So what, what the courts would do is they would, look, they would look at the whole situation in terms of where there is a closer connection. So, for example, if you have the, the individuals are having all their work um, administered and organised and their, effectively their home base is on the UK side of that, that channel, then that would point to there being a closer connection to the UK than there would be to French employment law, for example. But again, this, this is where the devil is in the detail because for example, it's, it's been reported that everyone was employed under Jersey law contracts. Yeah. But what's important to remember is that the UK courts, and I think in practice, given the, the, the generally much closer connection of P&O to the UK, I think it will be the UK courts that will do the, the, the heavy lifting on this. But this is something that will come out in the wash. But, Ultimately, P&O appears to have just simply made a, a calculated financial decision. Now, its, it's chief exec said to Parliament yesterday that the reason that it's done that is it basically said, well, no trade union could ever accept um, you know, what P&O was proposing. But that is not in itself a defence. You know, yeah, there, yeah. there importantly, there is a defence, which is you know, in what, what are called special circumstances. But this, and, and that would be sort of a sudden insolvency, for example. But this, this appears from the outside to have been a far more calculated decision to flout the law. And I think what we're seeing yesterday is, is why that is going down so badly, both publicly yeah. in terms of you know, consumer demand, we're hearing about you know, cancellations of bookings, but also with the politicians who are looking at all, all available avenues now. But doesn't the argument as well, maybe bring me to you, Vince, doesn't the argument from what the chief executive appeared to have said yesterday is that, look, we were paying decent British rates, but the seafaring business is based on cheap global rates and, you know, that was costing us a problem. So what we wanted to do was sack people who we pay decent British rates to and employ people on cheap global rates. And the unions were never going to accept that. Of course they weren't. 
But that appears to have been his argument. So therefore, we decided to ignore the law. Well, that, that's exactly the point that was being made um, it, and was raised in, in, in the Commons yesterday. But then they talked to the RMT and what the RMT said is that that was then built upon a false premise is because they don't have this for what the what PO ferries are saying, and that's made clear this is about PO ferries and this is not about PO cruise ships, they're two different, completely separate organizations. I suspect PO cruises would be changing its name rapido. Well, 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 part of the argument was is that is that the reason why they did this was to protect to protect PO as a as a British icon. Well, I, I think there's an argument as to whether they may have actually rubbished the PO uh, ferries as a as a British icon, but putting that to one side. Their argument was is that is that Ireland, for instance, is operate a similar model. Now I don't know whether that's true or not, but you're absolutely right. The idea was here is that it was very, very expensive to use British to use the British crews based upon the Jersey contracts because there were four crews manning the ship, and the new arrangement was going to be there's only going to be two crews manning the ships. What the RMT said is that's not true. Is that there's actually only two crews at the moment manning the ships. So there's a, a inconsistency, as David said. The devil will be in the detail. But the whole idea was to reduce the wages down. Now, this falls below the national minimum wage. And that then brings us into another part of the problem here is that how does the national minimum wage impact upon uh, seafarers? Now, the UK has in 2020, in October 2020, amended the national minimum wage legislation because it recognized that whilst those working on oil rigs and, and other platforms in British UK territorial waters had, had cover, the people who didn't have cover were those people who were ferrying to and from those, those uh, platforms. So they changed the rules. But in changing the rules, and this is the classic problem, there was a lacuna. And the lacuna was, is that the rules only applied to where the port where you started from and the port where you then returned to was in the same country, i.e. the UK. Now, we all know that cross-channel ferries go from the UK to, to France and back. But of course, France is a third country and therefore do not apply. So in the normal course of business, which they could have sorted out in the legislation and Grant Schaap, the Transport Secretary of State said today, this is something that Parliament will look at. They could have resolved that particular problem. So we have people on five pounds an hour, which is going to be half of the national minimum wage working in the UK. And of course, there are immigration issues which, which, which need to be, be dealt with. But that, to me, was a fundamental error in 2020, where the government failed to recognise is that what it was actually doing was creating a problem. I can understand when ships are sailing through the English Channel, not touching any English ports, or coming into, say, Tilbury, where they're in a container ship coming into Tilbury, where they're unloading, then going off to America, then going off to Canada, then going off to, or used to go to Russia, or going around to Japan and going to China, I can see how that would be applicable. But to go from the UK to France and back strikes me in the normal course of business, it seems to me to be, as I say, a lacuna in the legislation which has allowed this, this to occur. One of the things- if, if I just jump in on there, actually, one of the interesting comments yesterday in parliament was, uh, one of the Labour MPs actually described Parliament as, quote, I think, a law factory, precisely saying, you know, if there are lacunas in the law, which they, they'd heard about from, from some of the witnesses at the start, they said, we can step in to change things. And I think what's interesting, looking at how PO is rolling out its new model, 
is where it's got ferries that go in between Northern Ireland and the Great Britain mainland, which don't fall into these gaps in the minimum wage legislation, they have said that they will be paying UK minimum wage. So P&O is going to actually end up with a two-tier workforce effectively because the national minimum wage does kick in for some of its new staff. And I think, I think that in itself will point um, politically to there are ways that Parliament should be able to resolve this because it can make laws. So, so if, 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 for instance, if next week, if next week the UK Parliament was to uh, close down this loophole in the law and to say that uh, these very companies, P&O in particular, have to pay the UK national minimum wage, then the entire calculation of which P&O have been working for the last week or two is, is gone. Uh, Tom, I think that's a really interesting one because, you know, we're speaking for everyone's awareness on Friday the 25th. The, the government ministers who are giving evidence to the, the committees yesterday in Parliament have said that they will come forward next week with a package of proposals. They wouldn't be drawn on exactly what's in that package, so that's a watch this space as things develop over the next seven days. But I would be therefore surprised if by next Friday we haven't seen probably legislative proposals or at least consultation on legislative proposals that will be designed probably to try and stop a range of these issues. I think you know, what we've seen is actually this, this example has, has really demonstrated there are a range of areas which an unscrupulous employer could try and use to try and circumvent um, in certain situations. Okay, so let me finish with a question that would be of relevance to, you know, all of the companies that we normally deal with because ships are a sort of, a, quite frankly, a law unto themselves because of the nature of the, of the business. Now, one of the things P&O appears to be saying is, look, we know we didn't inform and consult. And if we were found guilty of not informing and consulting, we'd be hit by a 90-day penalty award. So we're going to pay that anyway. I presume that you two guys would not advise companies to take that approach in the normal circumstances to say, ah, the most they'll hit us with is 90 days. So we might, we'll pay the 90 days and short circuit the process because that would then possibly leave you open to criminal penalties. Completely. I mean, we've got to split slightly two things here. So there's, there's the criminal side, which is the notification to the relevant government, be that the UK or the, where, the, where a ship's a ship is flagged in that particular situation. And then there is the, the civil regime, which is where individuals or, or more particularly their representatives can go to an employment tribunal and claim exactly, as you say, a protective award, which is a punitive award of 90 days of uncapped pay. I, I think, frankly, what, what we're really seeing now come out is actually there is a bigger cost than simply an employment law aspect here. You know, obviously, the criminal fines are unlimited, so that could be, you know, by definition, a very, very expensive issue. But what we're seeing is the reputational damage. And I think you know, the, the relationship with unions and the reputational damage, this, this is almost a textbook example of how not to do things. And I think you know, that the real cost to P&O will far exceed you know, simply the employment tribunal claims or, or, or the amounts they're settling. Yeah, I, I, mean, think, I, think, I think that's what I said in a little post I put on LinkedIn a day or, a day or two back. But a question for you, Vince. I mean, could you see a situation because of this, you know, and very often laws are made in the middle of a crisis and in a reaction to a crisis. Could you see a situation where the government moves um, to say, well, if you deliberately decide to flout information and consultation laws and think you can get away with it by paying 90 days, we're going to amend the law to make sure you can't do that either? Uh, I'm not sure they will, Tom, to be truthful. Um, I don't. Could you, think could, you, that, could, could you see a Labour government doing that? I, I could see a Labour government doing it, but I can't see the, the current government doing it. I think the, the problem and why there's, I mean, there's one thing that the PO ferries have achieved is that they've united the left of politics and the right of politics in their outrage as to what's happened. So it is interesting is that there was a, there's a programme on, on UK television called Question Time. And last night, 
the minister who was appearing on behalf of the government was actually lambasted by a, by a fairly large conservative majority audience in the way in which it had dealt with this, the way in which it had been dealing with things in the past. And I, I do think is that there is now pressure on, particularly on, upon the government, to look as though that even the EU does not mean is that British employment rights will be reduced. And I think the example that people were looking at yesterday, David talked about the Commons, was looking at was looking at the Netherlands and looking at France, where there's been no such action taken against those employees in those jurisdictions. And the reason given yesterday was, well, there isn't that many of them. Well, it could be, as we all know, is that is that they have greater protection in relation to 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 collective consultation um, than we do in the UK. So I I do think is that I don't think it's going to go as far as that it's going to be outlawed, but I certainly think is that notification and some beefing up of legislation will take place. Okay, so watch this space. Indeed. Yeah, okay. So look, let's come back in a few weeks' time and talk a little bit further and maybe a little bit greater length about um, the totality of British labour relations now that the UK um, has left the European Union. Because I think what you've just said there, both of you have just said, is that, you know, the UK government no longer is able to say we can't do anything because of EU law. Well, wasn't that the whole point of Brexit to be able to do what you want? Hey, chickens, or should I say ships coming home to roost. David, Vince, thanks. Talk soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.